If you have a Bible, turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 9. We are going to read, beginning with verse 14, we're going to read all the way through verse 29, and then we are going to talk about it. And when the disciple, when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. They were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when they, the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out but by, by anything but prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this service. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this moment uh, in, in the word of God and what it means, Lord, for us. And I pray that it would help shape us. God, we ask that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying this morning and that you would help me to communicate and say what needs to be said in a way that is helpful. Lord, we thank you for all of it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, First of all, before I go into this, let me remind everybody of what we talked about last week, which was the transfiguration. Jesus is up on the mountain. He's got James, John, and Peter, and Jesus is glorified in front of them. He is transfigured. He metamorphosizes is the Greek word, and he is revealed in his glory. And that was the sermon last week. But there was something I think I said that may have been a little confusing, so I want to make sure that it's all clear. Um, when, when we described, I described last week uh, that John the Baptist was the Elijah to come, I did not mean to suggest that Moses and Elijah, who appeared with Jesus, that that Elijah was actually John the Baptist. That is not what I meant uh, to communicate. So a couple of people asked me some questions. So I just wanted to let you know, when Jesus was on the mountain and Moses and Elijah, the Elijah and the Moses that were there were the real Elijah and the real Moses. John the Baptist in the book of Matthew is described as the Elijah to come from Jesus. 
And the way Jesus describes it is, he says, if you are able to receive it, or if you can, if you can bear this, or if you can accept this, John the Baptist is the Elijah to come. So John the Baptist is a type of Elijah, or a, a type or shadow uh, of Elijah preparing the way of the Lord. Does that all make sense? And the way that John the Baptist prepared the way of the Lord was repent is what his message was. So, so that's who John the, John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. Jesus says he fulfills that prophecy in Malachi that he is the Elijah to come. But the guy on the mountain with Jesus was Moses and the real deal Elijah. Okay. All right. Now, what's interesting is, is having left that scene, verse 14 tells us that they are coming down the mountain from this great, awesome experience. Um, I want to read you something that William Lane said in the commentary I've been reading. This, the episode exhibits the disaster which occurs when men from whom the power of faith may be expected are proven to be void of power when it is needed. That's what this whole story shows. Because we just, we just come down off the mountain. Jesus is revealed in his glory. Peter, James, and John are probably still have their heads swimming with what they just saw. And now you come down off the mountain and there's this crowd and the other nine disciples that are left behind have created such a commotion that's drawn a crowd and they are unable to cast the demon out. So that is what Jesus comes down into. From being up on the Mount of Transfiguration, he comes down and this is what he finds. So we're gonna, I'm just going to go through this uh, text um, just verse by verse, I just want to just slowly go through everything so we can get um, the impact of it. So the first thing you see in verse 14, there's scribes there arguing. What, what The reason that the scribes are there arguing, uh, more than likely, is they were operating under the impression they're the only guys allowed to try to cast demons out. So who the heck do you think you are? Looks like a bunch of fishermen and a tax collector and a zealot and some other unsavory characters. Who in the world do you think you are? Now, Jesus' ministry has already spread. The fame of it spread. And these scribes are coming from Jerusalem because they had a system by which they investigated what was going on religiously in the community. And that's why they're probably there. So here you have this situation where they're trying to cast a demon out and can't. And the scribes, we don't know. I'm, I'm extrapolating this, so you, this may or may not be true. But I have a strong suspicion that they were a little bit gloating. <laughs> you thought you could do it. Now, if, uh, if you've, how many of you have seen the series The Chosen? How many of you, uh, the very, very first episode, you get to see what a Jewish Exor exorcism would look like. Uh, Nicodemus, they have him coming in. He brings in incense. He's burning these gross-smelling roots. That was something they used to do. Fill the room with this smell. And then they would invoke the names of angels uh, and, and 
try to command this demon to come out. They had this really interesting way of doing it. Um, whereas Jesus just simply said, shut up, leave. Which is why everybody was so astonished when Jesus did it. That's the backdrop. But here the disciples are trying to cast the demons out, and they are unable. Now, here's what's really, really interesting uh, to me. And Trevor, I don't remember if I... Did, did we have Matthew uh, or chapter 6? No, we don't. It's okay. We don't, we don't need to go there. But in chapter 6, do you remember when Jesus sent the disciples out earlier? This is several, several weeks ago. When Jesus sent the disciples out, one of the things he said was, I am giving you authority to heal the sick and cast out demons. How many of you remember that? And then when the disciples come back, remember they are rejoicing that they have this authority to do it. Remember that? Because it actually worked. They go out and they're doing the work of ministry that Jesus is doing. That all happens in chapter 6. So these guys, these disciples, have all cast out demons before. This is not something they haven't done. This is something they have done. Jesus gave them a very specific grace to go out as his disciples in the spreading of his message, and they had done it until this happens. Jesus says in verse 16, what are you arguing about with them? Before anybody gives us an answer, the Father speaks out. Verse 17, someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. They were not able. I want to say something about this. I actually talked to my daughter this morning. So, uh, she's like, are you going to call me a Pharisee again? It's like, I didn't call you a Pharisee, if you remember that sermon. So, uh, having experienced epileptic seizures at our house, having seen exactly what's described here, um, the temptation is that you can feel uh, like, well, maybe the Bible doesn't know what it's talking about, because we know that epilepsy isn't demon possession, right? And if you talk to a good skeptic, they'll say, well, see, this is just an example of the ancient world simply ascribing what we now know today in our sophistication. We know this isn't demonic. It, it must be just they're mistaken. Has anybody ever encountered this before, this argument? Uh, it's definitely an argument that's used. But here's, here's what we know. In, in Matthew... When, when, um, when he's uh, giving out the authority for uh, the disciples to heal, one of the things he talks about is sickness and diseases, including seizures, but then also casting out demons. So the, the simple answer, which a lot of skeptics' questions that seem so scary at first are really very, very simple, here's the answer. Sometimes it's just regular sickness because of the fall of man and people are sick. And sometimes it's demonic. Ta-da! Answered the question. It's not even remotely complex, but when you get confronted by people who sound so convincing, well, clearly they didn't understand epilepsy. 
Well, clearly they did. In this particular case, it was a demon at work because it wasn't just the seizures. He's also mute and he's also deaf. And in fact, later Jesus, when he rebukes the spirit, he refers to it as a mute and deaf spirit. So sometimes there's demonic activity and sometimes there's not. And it's usually pretty clear when there is demonic activity. Now, I'm not going to spend the whole sermon talking about that. Uh, and a lot of people get super interested when you start talking about that kind of stuff. But the, the reality is that there really is a devil. And the reality is there really are demons. And the reality is they really do interact with people on the earth. And this is an example of a father who has a child that is afflicted with a demon that's creating all kinds of problems, and the dad is desperate. So the dad hears that Jesus is in the vicinity and brings him to Jesus, but Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, and the only thing he's got are the nine benchwarmer disciples uh, that were not up on the mountain with Jesus. He's got the other nine guys, and they can't fix it. So Jesus, in verse 19, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. He's going to fix it. But you, you, get, the, uh, you get the tone of what Jesus is feeling right here. It's Really, you don't have to be a theologian to figure out. That, that sounds like somebody frustrated with some folks that should know better. That's what it sounds like. Jesus, and there's two ways you can look at this when he says faithless generation. Is he talking to the whole crowd? He, he might be. I, I think he may be specifically, though, addressing his disciples. The reason I think that is because he's given them the authority to do what they need to do, and he's been chastising them throughout the book of Mark, on their unbelief. I mean, everybody enjoyed the story of how many times they keep not understanding about the bread. You know, we've talked about that quite a bit, and he keeps telling them it's their unbelief and their hardness of heart. Even though they're following the Messiah, they still have this persistent unbelief, hardness of heart, not getting it. And even after, like we discussed the past two weeks, even after Peter is shown by supernatural revelation, you are the Christ. Even after that, he still doesn't get everything. So to me, this is Jesus saying, how long are you going to be like this, faithless? How long am I going to bear with you? Now, I know we always want Jesus to sound a little nicer than that, right? He's the big, colossal, nice guy, teddy bear in the sky, after all. Here to affirm always and criticize never. Well, that is the American Jesus, and that's why we've got so many problems. Because that is not the biblical Jesus. The biblical Jesus says, come up here where I am calling you to be. Quit being stuck 
in your own head, in your own heart, in your own world, in your own culture, doing it your way. Quit that. I've got a better way. So he's a little exasperated. But what I uh, really appreciate is his patience with us is endless and infinite. Because if, if I were Jesus, or if you were Jesus, the, the next words out after, how long will I bear with you, may very well have been, and bring the lightning. And just wipe everybody out. Sick and tired of you guys not paying attention for crying out loud. I've been walking on water. I've been feeding thousands of people with just a little bit of bread and fish. I've, I've cast out how many demons? How many demons, Peter? How many demons have I cast out? A bunch? How many people have been healed? A lot? What is wrong with you? Zap, starting over. Getting a fresh batch, 12 new disciples. That's probably the way eventually we would think. So when you hear Jesus being frustrated, it doesn't mean that Jesus is giving up. In fact, what you're going to see throughout the rest of this is he's going to teach, lead, and show them again the way that it's supposed to be. Okay, so... Just because uh, Jesus is frustrated doesn't mean he's given up. Okay, verse 20. They brought the boy to him, and when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus panics, doesn't know what to do, and freaks out too. That is not what the next verse says. That might be what the book of Steve would have had written uh, if it was me, but that is not what Jesus did. So again, Jesus has this effect on the demon possessed. The demon comes in, sees Jesus, but there is something different about this demon. It sees Jesus, doesn't, it, he just immediately triggers a manifestation of of its demonic control of this boy, throws him on the ground, he's rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And it, in a picture of cool as a cucumber, Jesus says to the father, so uh, how long has this been happening to him? But he's, picture, crowd, scribes, dejected disciples, the three guys that had just been up on the mountainside with him, and the dad who is in desperation, and a boy who we just heard a demon scream through him, convulsing the boy, foaming at the mouth on the ground, and Jesus goes, how long has he been like this? Totally unconcerned. And the father says, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water, to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. So, we get a little more information on what the demon is doing in this boy's life. It's not just an epileptic seizure. It's not just deaf and mute. The, uh, there's multiple attempts for him to be killed. He has the seizure and falls in the fire. He has the seizure and falls into the water. The dad, we can infer, 
has been spending a lot of time watching his son like a hawk to make sure he doesn't die. You can imagine what this life would be like. Every day, I have to watch my son to make sure that he doesn't have a demonic episode and die. And listen to what he says in the second half of the verse, and this is incredibly important. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. This man, having heard the reputation of Jesus, brings the boy to where Jesus is known to be and finds nine disciples. The nine disciples, who have cast out many demons themselves, say, we know how this works. We'll take care of it. They attempt to take care of it and can't. Now, I don't know what that scene really looked like, but if there's a crowd of people, you can bet that it was chaotic. Them maybe doing what you see people do today, yelling and screaming, rah, rah, come out, rah, rah, just whatever they may be doing, a big show, and people are and the demon is doing nothing but what it wants. This has been awful. The dad's heart probably sunk in just to the dirt in hopelessness. This is, the, this is my only hope for my son. And so now the leader of these disciples is here, and he says, if you can. I can understand that what's probably happening here is there's a little bit of bitter, disappointed accusation in the words. If you can do any, and the reason I believe that is what the tone is, is because Jesus' response in verse 23, if you can, if you can, and then immediately, all things are possible for one who believes. So when Jesus is repeating back to him, he's basically doing this if you can, if you can, really? Me? And then he turns it right back around on him and says, all things are possible for the one who believes. Jesus is saying, the issue is nothing to do with what I can do. I am God in the flesh. I can do anything. Every molecule in your body I designed. Every star above your head in the heavens I placed there with the breadth of my hand and measured them. I called them by name. If I can, that's what, that is what Jesus is saying back. And he turns it around and says, all things are possible for one who believes. So the guy is doubting Jesus' ability, and Jesus is correcting him. I want to read you something from William Lane. He says, Jesus indicates that the release of the man's son from possession is not to be a response 
to the conditional if you can. As if power were, as if, at, <laughs> let me read that again. Jesus indicates that the release of the man's son from possession is not to be a response to the conditional if you can, as if power were something elicited through challenge. So the statement that he made, if you can, is almost like a challenge. He's almost like saying, if you can do something, if you can do it. There are people with this attitude towards God. If, if you can. You can understand how the dad got here. Especially over the disciples not getting the job done. It's not a response to the conditional, if you can, as if power were something elicited through challenge. What is to be tested in the arena of experience is not Jesus' ability, but the Father's refusal to set limits to what can be accomplished through the power of God. In other words, the issue is not that God can. The issue is, can you believe that I can? Do you believe that I am the God of the impossible? Do you believe that? Because all things are possible to the one who believes. In this particular case, we're talking about healing. That's not the only thing that that phrase that Jesus gives should be limited to. Can, can God do other things? Can God radically change people's hearts and minds? All things are possible to him who believes. Can God provide supernatural provision or direction or wisdom? Can God do this? Yes. Yes, he can. Can God provide spiritual gifts in a church? Can God provide uh, the kind of direction that comes at the last minute to do a thing you didn't know how to do? Can God do those things? Yes. And Jesus is telling us and telling this man, the issue is not whether or not I can. The issue is my people are to be people who believe in the God who does impossible things. Now, all things are possible to him who believes does not mean all things are guaranteed to those who believe. That is not what Jesus is saying. None of you are going to pray that you can fly. Well, you can. It's not going to work. None of you are going to pray, even though we joke, Lord, remove these calories from the cake. Has anybody ever joked about that at the church fellowship dinner as you eat your 12th piece of cake? It's not going to work. Well, all things are possible. That's not what it means. It means that I am supposed to believe the God who is in charge of this entire universe that He can do anything. And yes, all things are possible to those who believe in this God. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Go to Mark chapter 14, verse 36. 
I think I gave that one to Trevor. I'll give you an example of how this prayer happened with Jesus. It's almost a repeat. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to the cross. This is a famous scene. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. That is his prayer. This is, when we get here, we'll spend some time on this a lot. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus is acknowledging that all things are possible with God, but not all things are guaranteed. That I will explain that more. We submit our requests to God in faith. We have to believe. We have to trust. We have to believe He's the God of the impossible. But we have to do it, submit it in a way that says, Lord, I am trusting in You for the outcome. Not submitting. Here is, I am naming a promise, claiming a promise, confessing a promise. This is the way I used to think about it. Naming it claiming it, confessing it, until the manifestation is in my life. No, what we do is we pray and we have faith in the God who does impossible things, but we never, ever, ever, ever put ourselves in a position of God and say, this outcome is guaranteed. However, there's an ugly side to that coin as well. You cannot then pray, well, if God is not going to guarantee everything, then whatever will be, will be. Because that is the other side of the ditch which causes people to quit praying and quit seeking and quit asking. And that is not what this is telling me to do. What this is telling me to do is trust in the God who does impossible things. My faith is in God not in my ability to believe. Does that make sense? Otherwise, faith becomes a circle where I am constantly just focused on me. Am I believing enough? Am I saying it the right way? Am I praying it the right way? Did I give enough? Did I forgive everybody the right way? Did I say all the right words? Did I say a negative word? Did I say something sideways? Am I in sin? You just start going through this list of what I did, 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 what I did. There are actually preachers who say you have to have faith in your faith, a scripture that you will not find anywhere. No, you have faith in God who does these things. Now the dad hears this and he recognizes instantly what he's done wrong. Look at verse 24. Immediately, after Jesus just said, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. I've just, i got to share with you right now that Stacy, is she in here? She's with the kids? Okay, so this will be better because she's not in here. Stacy does the song list 
for the worship team. Stacy felt burdened in her heart that this Sunday we needed to do the song we just did, which is a song that the worship team wrote. Rob wrote the song, Lord, I Believe, Help My Unbelief, based off of this passage. Now, how does that happen? Because Stacy did not know what I was getting at. And Rob, we have a group me text message with the worship team, and Rob says, well, is Steve going to preach on that this Sunday? Maybe we should save it for that Sunday. I was like, uh, actually, that is what I'm preaching on this Sunday. So I just, I just want to share with, with everybody that God does do little things like that intentionally, on purpose, to give you ample excuse to believe in the God with whom all things are possible. So I just want to throw that out there. But the Father recognizes immediately the difference between what he had said prior and what Jesus just said. He recognizes that when he said, if you can, that he meant, I am so disappointed and so frustrated and nothing is working, and if you can do something, do something. And then that gets turned totally upside down when Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. All things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, dad recognizes and says, I believe. I believe you can do it. And then he recognizes something that every one of us have felt. And if you just are honest with yourself, you understand verse 24 as well as any theologian. I believe, but there's this whole other part of me that doesn't believe. Help me with my unbelief. Which, to me, means he totally believes. Do you know why I'm saying that? Because he's not going somewhere else to get help with his unbelief. He is going to the source. He is saying, if there's any help to be had, it's going to have to come from you. It's kind of like, and I've had this experience every one of my daughters, Abby, Hannah, Sophie, and Arwen, with their little purses, little tiny purses, and we give them money and they put in there. They have no idea what the money means. They just know it looks cool and they feel like mommy. And they got the little purse. And typically they're somewhere between 73 cents and $1.27 is what's actually in the purse. But the more pennies, the better, or dimes, because they're shinier, right? You guys all know how little kids are. I'm like, sure, I'll give you, give you all these pennies for dimes. You know, if I swindled my kids as much as I could, since I gave them the money anyway. So they've got their little purse. And we're at the mall, and we want to get ice cream. And ice cream is, what, $75 for an ice cream cone right now? So, so their $1.27 is not going to cut it. And they say, Daddy, I'll help pay for it. Now, I, I love that little interaction uh, when that happens and they're learning and they're growing. I'm like, okay, how much you got? <laughs> oh, I've got all, Hannah used to say, I got monies. I've got, I've got monies. So, so we look in there and she's got $1.27. 
the price is five dollars. I'm like, Hannah, that's not enough. And she says, Can you help me with the rest of it? No. I told you to believe. I'm not going to help you with the rest of this. That is not what I say. What I really do, and girls don't tell Arwen this, what I really do is I just use my debit card and let them keep the $1.27 that they got in there because it's too annoying to give them, here's a $1.27. Yeah, okay, so that's what happens. My point is that they come to me as their father and say, this is what I've got. I've got a dollar twenty-seven of faith. It's not all the way up to five bucks. Help me with what I don't have. That is what this dad is saying. He is saying, I believe. But I got another chunk of me that doesn't believe. Help me. This is got to be one of the most encouraging verses in the Bible. Notice that the next thing out of Jesus' mouth is not, oh, faithless generation. The next thing out of Jesus' mouth is, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Verse 25, when Jesus saw the crowd, that a crowd came running together, now there's more attention being drawn. He rebuked the unclean spirit because this kid has been thrashing around on the ground the whole time. With, and that's where the dad says, I believe, help me in my unbelief. You mute, mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Now this is unique. This is the only time in the New Testament this is recorded. This is the only time Mark gives more detail in this story than anybody else. And this detail doesn't exist uh, in all the stories or the other uh, synoptic gospels. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he's dead. So he was thrashing around. Jesus said, come out, never come back. And then there's this terrible... The King James says it tore him, it convulsed him, this massive last seizure, and then he's limp. Jesus reaches down, takes him by the hand, lifts him up, and he arose. So it's a miracle. It is another miracle of Jesus. Verse 28 and 29, round this story out. Remember the nine guys that couldn't cast it out? They've got some questions. Notice they don't ask the questions in front of the crowd. It's just one of those things. Because if you asked in front of the crowd, Jesus would answer in front of the crowd. They're concerned that his answer may not be something they want answered in front of the crowd. So when they had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not 
cast it out. They're confused. They're frustrated. They had cast out demons before. It's one of the most interesting answers to a question. And he said, this kind, this unique demon type cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. There's a couple things I want to say about this. Number one, how many have a translation that says prayer and fasting? Raise your hand. King James, New King James will say that. Several other, the NIV, does it say and fasting? It doesn't. How many of you have a footnote or a, a one or something that directs you to? So what we have here is an example of something called a textual variant. Uh, and what the easiest way for me to explain it without a six-hour uh, without a six-hour explanation because it requires a six-hour explanation is this: the oldest and most reliable manuscripts do not have the phrase "and fasting." However, the majority of manuscripts do have the phrase "and fasting." Now that requires a six-hour explanation of where we got the Bible and how it works. Um, I will simply say that what's, it, I don't know the answer. Scholars just basically say the early church really, 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 really had a lot of uh, uh, emphasis on fasting. And somewhere along the line, it shows up in the manuscript tradition. But in the earliest manuscripts, it's not there. So it either belongs there or it doesn't, we're not sure. But either way, the concept of what Jesus is saying is the same. So that's the first thing I wanted to address. And that's going to be a big deal when we get to the end of Mark, because the end of Mark has about uh, 13 verses uh, in some translations that aren't in other translations. So we'll get to that issue later. But I wanted to point that out so you would know. What Jesus is telling them almost sounds to me, in one sense, it's almost a cruel answer. It's not. But, uh, Jesus, we were praying. That's, that's what we were doing. It didn't work. So I don't think he meant the prayer they prayed when they tried to cast the boy out, cast the demon out of the boy. That isn't the kind of prayer Jesus is referencing. Think what Jesus is referencing is the daily communion with God that Christians are supposed to have. And I mean daily. And the reason why I think that is the issue, and, and again, this is what I believe the text is telling us. At some point along the way, in them, the disciples casting out demons, if I put myself in their shoes, there's a part of me going, that's right. I'm one of the chosen 12 disciples of Jesus. And when I tell demons to leave, they do. Scribes have to use burnt roots. I just command them because Jesus gave me that ability. Jesus gave me that authority. Somewhere along the line, they got lazy. They got complacent. It's called resting on your laurels. 
It's called, I Had a Religious Experience in 1997 at a youth camp. And that experience is going to carry me for the next decade. No, it's not. I had a really good cry session at an altar in a worship service at night. The air condition was just right. It was summer. That's, that's not what sustains our walk with God, is having moments and then broad gaps of no relationship with God. What, what sustains us is a daily relationship with God. Jesus says this kind can't be driven out by anything but prayer. The kind of prayer Jesus is talking about is clearly the kind of prayer they had not been doing. So I'm inferring, I could be wrong, but I am inferring from that that they had quit praying on a regular basis. All I'm really saying is, is I think Jesus is saying, you have to be in cont continual, constant prayer. You have to be living a lifestyle as a Christian in prayer. Because this kind, this kind isn't leaving unless you have been in fellowship with the Father. This kind isn't going anywhere. Now, I want to I wanna end by having everybody turn with me to Acts chapter 4. And this will be the end. Verse 23. The, the reason I think that was the lesson Jesus was telling them, when they want to know why couldn't we cast it out, and Jesus says, this kind doesn't come out except by prayer. And we can just add the word and fasting if you want. Of course, Jesus had also told the disciples that while the, the bridegroom is here, there is no fasting. Because they wanted to know why the disciples weren't fasting. Well, Jesus gave them a reason for that. But that so that's why I think that what I think the, the oldest manuscripts are probably correct. It should be this kind doesn't come out by prayer. I think it means regular, give us this day our daily bread kind of prayers. In other words, constant communion and fellowship with God. And the reason I think that is I want you to go back to something that was life-changing for me. It's Acts chapter 4, starting with verse 23. This is where the disciples had the day before healed a man who had been crippled for years and preached the gospel. People were saved and got thrown in prison because of their boldness. When they were released... They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them, which, by the way, was, don't you dare preach the gospel anymore. And when they heard it, the whole crowd, this is like Rob and I being in jail and coming back, two elders of the church. We come back into the church and say, the Huntington Police Department and the people in charge of religious observance told us that we're not allowed to preach here on Sundays anymore. And we come back and tell you. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together, the whole church, to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. 
And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. What does that have to do with what Jesus said? This kind doesn't come out except by prayer. The lesson of Acts chapter 4 is this. It doesn't matter that I saw a man crippled, healed yesterday. And it doesn't matter that I was bold yesterday. Today is a new day. And if I do not go to the source, if I do not go to God and ask Him for help and ask Him for His anointing and ask Him for His guidance, if I do not ask Him for the power of the Holy Spirit, if He doesn't empower me to be bold, then I will cave. I will fold like a wet napkin. I am incapable on my own of doing this on my own. I need help. Every day I need God to work. So I have to pray every day. They have learned a lesson. They were casting out demons in Mark chapter 6, and in Mark chapter 9, they can't. I take that to mean they had thought they had spiritually arrived. But the same guys in Acts chapter 4 do a miracle, preach boldly, people get saved, they get thrown in prison, and their very first prayer is, Lord, look at their threats and give us boldness and give us the anointing to go out and you do these signs and wonders, and they got exactly what they asked for. Provision for another day of ministry. What Acts chapter 9 is telling us is we have to believe that God is the God of the impossible and that all things are possible, though not guaranteed, but all things are possible through believing in Him and part of us believing in Him is praying and seeking Him every day. This is a real complicated sermon, isn't it? Believing and seeking Him every day. And in those moments of desperation, saying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Because that is the position God wants us in all the time. I am dependent on You, Lord, for anything and everything. Ask yourself this question. When everything is going well, is that when you pray the most? It isn't, is it? So frustrating. Everything's going well. Then you hit this patch of anxiety, frustration, difficulty, and then all of a sudden your Bible reading is different. All of a sudden your prayer is different. All of a sudden your worship is different. You come into this sanctuary different. You are seeking God. Your heart is pointed toward, Lord, I need you. God comes in, He helps, He's molding you in those moments. And He helps, and then things start brightening up and they're a little bit better, and what do we do? Lord, I'm prone to wander. Leave the God I love. Lord, I feel it. The point of that song is the hymn writer recognizing, Lord, I need you to come and do a work in me. And so if you and I can just simply learn not to be spiritual gurus, 
that sit in our room in the dark with the right worship CD and the right feelings, praying six hours a day, but living our lives to the glory of God with prayer and trust in Him every single day. You have no idea the kind of things you'll be capable of believing and seeing God do. Who knows? Who knows where God will take people that pray and read their Bible every day seeking Him? Let's stand up. If you're like me, the news of our world is depressing. Raise your hand if it's depressing. Raise your other hand if it's anxious. Okay. All right. You see all this stuff going on in the world. You see what's going on in Ukraine and Russia. You see what's going on in terms of a world where it's hard to know what you can even believe. Does anybody else feel like that? Not sure what the uh, there's more information at my fingertips, and I'm not sure what parts to believe. I am convicted in my heart that in, in this moment in world history that the church has got to turn to God in prayer and turn to God in the simplicity of I'm going to go to work and work hard to the glory of God. I'm going to raise my family to the glory of God and I'm going to pray and I'm going to seek God and He is going to culminate history however He wants. He wants me alive in this moment. That means He wants me praying in this moment. He wants me here in this moment. Uh, he wants me telling people about Him in this moment. We are not here randomly by chance. We are here, like Mordecai told Esther, for such a time as this. So, let's pray. Father, we thank You for this day. Thank You for Your Word. Thank you for the life-giving truth that it is. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be softened, convicted. Lord, that we would be people that believe, and in our unbelief we go to the source for help. And I pray, Lord, we would be people of prayer. God, forgive me for complaining more than praying. Lord, help us with this. Lord, we pray for the world around us. We pray for the leadership of this country. We pray for President Biden and his staff. We pray, Lord, for military leaders. This Everything we're seeing on the news is overwhelming and beyond our comprehension. God, we pray that there would be peace. We pray that righteousness would be done. God, we know you're in charge you raise kingdoms up and you tear them down. We, we submit to your rule. Lord, we ask that we would shine like a light in the middle of this dark spot. We pray, God, for boldness, that you would fill our mouth with your word, that we would fearlessly and boldly declare what we ought to declare, that we would have speech seasoned with salt and with grace. Lord, that we would be filled with your spirit, that we would speak the truth in love, not out of a delight for others to be wrong, but in the pursuit of your truth. Lord, we thank you for it. Let us be that light this week, boldly. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray.
Amen. Amen. We love you. This Friday, 7 p.m., we will see you here for that movie. Have a wonderful day.